how do I wrestle with that? Like, how do I get around the anger that I had? And I was, I was angry at God for, for months off the back of this, um, which was really a weird thing when you're studying at seminary to be a pastor and, and, and you know, you, you kind of hate God. I remember in my diary, I wrote one day, like, um, I, I know I love you, God, but I don't like you very much. And I think that was very much the, the journey that I was on. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. Welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. I'm Andy Dixon, and it's my great pleasure to have you joining me for this episode, Justice, Sperm Counts, and a Broken Hallelujah. If you are new to Down to Earth Conversations, the premise is that rather than heaven being some far-off space reserved for some after we die, maybe heaven is what happens when we find the good in the world, here and now. And maybe we can bring a bit of heaven down to earth when we do some good in the world here and now. And so I've gone looking for the good and I've found some awesome people doing some great things, yet at times very ordinary things, that bring a bit of heaven down to earth. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with today's guest, Andrew Gardner. Uh, Andrew is a fantastic communicator and a great thinker, and so we get in deep in this episode, going way beyond small talk to some really vulnerable and personal spaces, uh, as the title of the episode would suggest. Uh, We talk about his love of storytelling and creativity, uh, his passion for justice and the search for living a just life, and the connection between faith and suffering, including uh, Andrew vulnerably sharing from his own challenging journey towards fatherhood. If you find this episode helpful in any way, please share it on social media, tell your friends, and help this conversation get out there because there is gold in here that needs to be heard. This is episode 25 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Andrew Gardner. I'm here today with an old friend of mine, Andrew Gardner. Welcome, Andrew. Mate, it's uh, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. No problem. A lot of people who are listening to this podcast won't know you, and, and actually probably won't pick where you're from either from your accent, because you've got right. one of those accents that exactly. yeah. you're just trying to figure out where the heck is that from. <laughs> um, so do you want to tell us where the heck that's from, and uh, and also a little bit about you just to introduce yourself to the, the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm Andrew Gardner. Uh, I'm uh, a pastor, a husband, father to a beautiful daughter uh, who's 10 years old. Um, I live in Hong Kong. uh, And so uh, I guess my background, I I was born in the UK, so I'm English by background. um, But uh, my father was, he worked for an international bank and we moved around a lot in my first seven years in the UK. In fact, I I lived in about 13 different cities in the first seven years of my life, uh, just based in the UK. Uh, And then we moved to the US when I was seven and we lived there for four years. um, and then at the age of 11, we moved to Hong Kong. So um, came here and, and really for the first time in my life, I had some stability. I went to the same high school for seven years as my, mm. my dad continued to travel around Asia and uh, do what he was doing for the bank. And so, um, yeah, Hong Kong became kind of my home. Uh, and that was 86 when we moved here. And uh, pretty much it's been uh, the place I've lived uh, ever since. So it's 30 uh, something years now that I've lived here in the city um, and had a time of uh, university back in the UK for a while for my undergraduate and then I did uh, Bible school theology in New Zealand which is where you and I met um, but uh, other than that yeah I've lived and worked in Hong Kong 
Uh, I'm a pastor. I run a church here called The Vine, uh, and uh, I've been doing that uh, for, um, well, since 2010, um, although I've been involved in the church uh, since it started. I was kind of part of the team that planted the church uh, in 1997. So, um, yeah, it's been a long journey with that church, and uh, yeah. I'm the senior pastor with them now. So, yeah, it's great. Cool. And actually, you were the you were the face on the brochure that got me along to to Bible college uh, to do my theological study. So that's right, uh, that's right. So yeah, that was pretty cool. I think I was the only um, guy on campus who had long hair, and they were like, "Oh, this guy looks semi semi non Christian. Let's put him on the brochure." <laughs> yeah, and maybe yeah. we'll attract people like you. There you go. Yeah, so totally. It worked. And then and then I came along, and they said, "Here's a guy who's a musician. So let's put right. him him on the website, and maybe that'll attract some people." So. <laughs> One of the things that I've I've noticed about you over the years is that uh, you seem to make sense of the world through story, uh, mm. and that there's a lot of the way that you engage with the world has this idea of story behind it. Do you want to explain what that's about in terms of how you see that that story as being a part of of how you interpret life? Uh, yeah, and, and what grabs you about stories? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess I've always been fascinated with um, creativity. Um, and I think storytelling is one of the most beautiful art forms of creativity uh, and the way in which um, a story can help shape culture, um, that story can help shape um, perspective and opinion. And I think also that story can provide a platform by which people can, from very different perspectives and backgrounds can come and actually have a conversation about something. Um, I mean, obviously, in, within the circle that I've kind of um, done most of my time in terms of studies, you know, would be scripture. And if you look at how Jesus moved and ministered to, he spent the majority of his time sharing stories. Um, and those stories enabled um, people from a variety of different backgrounds to come and, and to listen and to hear something and sometimes go away and be really upset about it and kind of go like, I don't agree with that or whatever, yeah. or to be drawn deeper into a further conversation. And so um, I think I've always been fascinated by the way that stories can create a shared space. Uh, for people to engage. Um, I did a lot of drama when I was in high school. Uh, and uh, so theater was my my big passion uh, in the early years of my life. And I think, um, you know, you learn a lot about story in that. You learn a lot about, you know, how a story is constructed, um, how to present a story. Um, and I think that's really just kind of stuck with me. And um, I had a 10-year career in finance uh, after I graduated from my undergraduate degree um, and then felt the calling to move uh, into the church and so quit my my job at an investment bank and uh, became a pastor. And um, I think a large part of the driving force for that was storytelling and my desire to want to tell the story of Scripture and tell the story of Jesus, but to do so uh, in a way that was creative and created mm. space for multiple interactions with it. Um, and I think some of my some of my most favorite communicators over the years um, have been those that are able to share story and do so in a way um, that really draws you in, touches base with parts of your life um, that you can connect to into that story, even though it might be their story they're sharing, uh, and then enable you to reflect deeper uh, on the meaning uh, of whatever is being presented. And so, yeah, it's really shaped a lot of my pastoral ministry. A lot of my preaching and teaching that I do is very story-based. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm passionate about music and movies and, uh, and learning how people present story in multiple different art forms. And I guess I've always tried to integrate that into the work that I do. I've seen that you've done a, a fair bit of um, like using film well in the way that you're yes. engaging with, with your people and stuff as well. It's not just you standing up and talking at people all the time. Yeah. You've, you've used that creativity well. 
Yeah, and actually, a, a couple of years ago, uh, a bunch of years ago, I studied actually how Hollywood presents stories. So if you look at basically any classic Hollywood film, right, uh, there's a very set formula towards how they present that story. There's there's that classic kind of Lord of the Rings structure where it starts with a group of people doing normal things in a normal environment, their home. Then comes a challenge. You know, Gandalf shows up and he challenges them to move on, you know, and then they, they decide to go on this adventure and they have that moment where they, they're like, you know, wow, this is the furthest I've ever been away from home. And there's this excitement about adventure. Then you have these challenges in the adventure and you have to overcome those challenges. And then you eventually overcome the challenge and then you return home at the end of the film. Like they all do, they go back to the Shire and they're sitting in that pub, which is where the film starts uh, or the story, the book. Uh, and they're sitting in that pub and they're like, oh, this isn't exciting for us anymore because we've just experienced all of that, you know? Mm. So they go home, but they're changed. Yeah. Um, that's the classic Hollywood story structure. Um, and actually, I've uh, I've taken that structure and most of my sermons that I preach, I actually preach it in that structure. So when I create my sermons or whatever teaching I might be doing, um, I take that structure and that formula, if you will, um, and I teach in that way. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a tried and tested way of helping people to understand something um, and actually find themselves living within it. Uh, rather than kind of feeling like they're sitting there just kind of being lectured to, yeah. but instead being invited into something that's much bigger. Yeah, This is something that's taken you like, beyond just your own church and, and you've got quite involved in the Justice Conference. Mm. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that journey for you? Yeah, well, a number of years ago, um, a um, a couple actually reached out um, to our church. They were in prison at the time here in Hong Kong, and they they wrote to us and they said, "Would somebody from the church come in and read the Bible?" And we we're like, "No, no, that's that's too inconvenient. We don't have a ministry for that, so we won't do it." Um, no, we we decided to go into the prison and start reading the Bible <laughs> yeah. to them, uh, and it was an amazing experience just opening Scripture to them. They were a, um, a Nepalese couple, and they'd been in Hong Kong because they had tried to seek asylum um, and they had overstayed their visas and the government had basically thrown them in jail. So anyway, when they were released uh, a few months later, they showed up on our doorstep at the church and they said, hi, we're, we're free now and we have nowhere to go. We have no money and we need help and we want to learn more about Jesus. Um, anyway, that just kind of led our whole church into a process of working with asylum seekers and refugees. So starting with mm. one family, it's kind of grew from there. Um, and I think with anything that you do that's journeying with with a, a group of vulnerable or hurting people, the initial phase is always going to be felt needs. You know, house them, feed them, care for them. If they're sick, try to help a process for healing. Uh, and that was very much kind of the first five years probably of that that ministry to this group of people. But after a while, they started to say things like, you know, we don't want you just to bandage our wounds. We want you to actually, you know, stop the wheels of injustice from rolling over us. Mm. Um, and, and we have bigger issues and bigger needs and we need you guys to be a voice because you have an influence. Um, and so we actually kind of began to shift to thinking about, okay, well, what is justice really about? Like, um, yes, there's the there's the need to meet those felt needs, but there's something much broader and bigger than that. And what is God's perspective on justice? And so that led us as a church into really wrestling. And this is something like 10 years ago, really mm. wrestling with the idea of justice, wrestling with God's heart. And I think we quickly discovered that um, scripture, the gospel is so often in the evangelical church tradition that I'm from, uh, it's so often presented as salvation as the primary context of the gospel. So the gospel is about, you know, sharing something that's good news for an individual so that they can come to a saving relationship with Jesus so that when they die, they go to heaven. And we began to realize as we studied scripture that actually there's a whole nother side of the gospel. And there's this kind of term that we use called the whole gospel, where the gospel, yes, is absolutely about 
salvation, and so often that is individual. Um, but actually, the gospel is is also about the idea of God's shalom and God bringing that shalom and, and the work out of that in all that we do. And so we felt very much theologically driven into this idea that if we're going to be a church for the gospel, we have to be a church for justice. You cannot separate those two things. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that led us into exploring what uh, other people and other places were saying about biblical justice. And that led us uh, to this very small conference at the time. This was back in 2011. Um, it was a little conference that was being organized by a church in Portland in Oregon. Um, and they had a couple of speakers that I wanted to, to listen to on the topic. And so myself and another pastor at the church signed up and we flew over to Portland and we went to this conference and um, it just blew us away. And we actually said to the organizer, hey, have you ever thought about doing this overseas? You know, Because everything that was being talked about in the conference was more of an American-centric justice-related issues. And we were like, there's a lot of issues. Uh, and also, interestingly, they were talking about a lot of issues like trafficking, for example, um, that actually has a lot of its roots in Asia and in particular our part of the world. And so we were sort of saying, like, we need to bring this conference to Hong Kong. And so a couple of years later, we did. And uh, we launched the conference you know, through the movement, the Justice Conference movement in Hong Kong. Uh, and now I think the movement's uh, happening in about 10 or 11 different cities around the world. So uh, it's a, an amazing thing. And basically the heart of it is just to bring um, the idea of a language of justice and a language of the gospel uh, for justice into the heart of the local church. Um, and that's really what our passion is to bring kind of the work that NGOs do. I don't know what it's like in New Zealand and in your part of the context, but in my part of the world here in Asia, a lot of local churches outsource justice to the NGOs. It's like, yeah, justice is a good idea, but we're going to leave that to the to like the NGOs of the world and they're going to mm. do the hard work of going into communities and really helping broken people and we'll just send them a check and that's our way of being just. Um, and we we really are trying to challenge that thought. And of course, NGOs um, have so much to contribute, but the local church, in my opinion, is the hope of the world. Uh, and the local mm. church is actually where so much of that justice work should happen. And in fact, the NGO world and the local church can actually work together, realize their strengths and differences. Uh, but um, we cannot outsource the reality of justice. Mm. Um, we, we If we're going to be people of Jesus, we have to be people of justice. And so that's kind of what we've been teaching and, mm. and really trying to lead our, our congregation into in the last uh, the last decade really mm. yeah and if you talk to the world visions and tier funds of the world they actually want that as well you know they, Absolutely. they don't they don't want to be doing it on their own they, they yeah. want to partner and and they want to be a vehicle by which uh, individuals and church communities can uh, get involved in stuff yeah um, not not just throw money at it no, totally, absolutely. Um, but we're very good at Christians at writing checks and not getting our hearts and or our lives involved, and so um, we're really trying to kind of challenge that at its core. Mm. Um, obviously, still writing a check is important, and the NGOs mm. obviously need to be fundraising and for the work that they do. Um, but um, we should write the check and. We should become more just in our own mm. lifestyles uh, and in the ways that we serve and work in our communities. Mm. I find it interesting that uh, you can be. Uh, really comfortable in the style of life that you're in or the, the mm -hmm. way that your church is. And then you get a, a moment where like these guys turn up on your doorstep mm -hmm. and everything changes. Absolutely. And I think it's it's those moments where you've got those decisions to make. And, and that can be as a church, as an individual, you mm -hmm, know, you, mm -hmm. you come across a need and you've got a choice of what do I do with that? And mm -hmm. I love that you guys have gone beyond okay, well, let's meet the immediate needs to what are the things that are driving the fact that there even are needs? Right. 
Right. And I, and I think the key for us was a theological conviction. I think if it was just down to like, oh, this just feels like the right thing to do, or surely being a Christian means more than just writing a check, right? Um, then I, I don't think it gets sustainable. I think it then just mm. gets petered out. It's an emotional whim. We kind of go like, oh, yeah, we should probably love our neighbor. Okay, we'll, we'll do this, that, and the other. Um, and it sustains for a short period of time and then fades out as other interests and distractions happen in our lives. But I think when, when we begin to see justice as a theological imperative, when it becomes a conviction of scripture and a conviction of, of how we come to think of God uh, and the nature of God, then it moves from just the, the action of doing something for another to the lifestyle, to the reality that actually to be Christ-centered, uh, if, I'm, if I'm going to call myself, if I'm going to take the name of Jesus onto myself and call myself a Christian, um, then I, I need to live a life um, that honors and reflects the diversity of God's nature and character. Um, and therefore, justice has to be in the middle of that. And so, so I think, um, it, yeah, it, you need those moments where God shakes you up, which is what, what that couple was when they sent us the, uh, the letter and then showed up on our doorstep. But I think then alongside of that, you need the ongoing work of good theology um, mm. to sustain you in the journey that you're in. Yeah, good point. That's really good. Mm. Um, and I think extremely important because I've had people say to me, social justice isn't in the Bible. You know, <laughs> you, you can't find the word social justice. And it's like, Whoa, okay, um, mm. I can't. Yes, I agree with you. You can't find the words social justice <laughs> anywhere in the Bible. But actually, the idea of justice, the idea that there are things in this world and systems that cripple people, that undermine people, that dehumanize people, and that that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah. is ev- everywhere in the Bible. It's, you know, it, and I think it's one of the primary driving forces of God's redemptive character. Um, I mean, you know, what you see at the end of Genesis 1 and 2 is this picture of shalom. It's a flourishing. It's an environment where Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. They were completely open, vulnerable, and trusted between one another there was no sin there was no shame involved in that uh, we know what happens in genesis 3 and and all of that that then takes us in in terms of um you know heading forward and i think god's redemptive character is lodged in the reality of shalom it's lodged in the reality of restructuring uh, and recreating that shalom but it's not to take us back to genesis 1 and 2 it's to move us forward to revelation 21 and 22 so there's a very different perspective of what that looks like but god is completely at work in that um and i think for us the primary question should be as a christian is like what am i doing how am i working to restoring god's good shalom and i think if you're asking that question then you're aligning yourself to the redemptive heart of god and if you're doing that then i think you cannot um ignore justice Mm -hmm. um because i think that's exactly what god is doing in restoration um i think it is what he's doing on, on the cross um and while, of course, justice isn't the only expression of what God does on the cross, uh, it's not necessarily the sum total of it. Um, I think it lies very much at the heart um, of, of you know, what Jesus is doing in that moment uh, and therefore should be at the heart of what we are doing in each one of ours. As you've uh, gone on this journey of justice with the church, has it been a challenging journey in terms of has it been an inconvenient journey, I guess, is what I want to get at? I, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I would answer a couple of ways. I would say it's not been an easy journey because, again, the evangelical tradition of which I'm a part of um, has not broadly accepted uh, that justice journey. And I think, again, they, they label it as lo- largely a liberal agenda. They see it largely 
uh, as this concern of not being central to the gospel. Um, and so I think there's been that challenge uh, mm-hmm. as our church has done that. I think we've lost some members uh, along the way as they've um, felt like we're we're no longer preaching Christ and Christ crucified, um, but we're we're speaking about other things that are justice related. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's been a, a challenge. I think the other inconvenience has become um, that I think as soon as you start to recognize um, that you're wanting to stand with the vulnerable and the marginalized, um, and not just, you know, that phrase, be a voice for the voiceless, I think that's actually a dangerous um, phrase. I think instead we should be creating platforms for the voiceless to have a voice. Um, yeah, cool. They're they're the ones who should be telling their stories. We we shouldn't be the great um, saviors that are coming in mm. uh, to tell their story. They need to tell their own story, but we need to help um, lay down our privilege um, and provide a platform for them to be able to come and share that story. So you know we recognize that we have an influence as a church. And we recognize that we have an influence in the spheres of um, you know government that we do and all of this kind of thing. So yeah, we we do have that ability to to speak up for them in those corridors of power, um, but we're constantly trying to provide that space for them to have their voice. And I think the there's an inconvenience that comes to that. If you're really committed to the poor and to the vulnerable, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've suddenly got to have to become poor and vulnerable yourself, although some people do do that. And there's a number yeah. of people in our church ministry and community that have done that. Uh, and I celebrate that. Um, but it does mean that you're going to have to take a look at your pride um, you're going to have to wrestle with your privilege. Uh, it does mean that you're going to have to take a look at your theology. Uh, it's going to um, ask you to question your spending habits. Um, and it's going to come at a personal cost. You know, there was something that happened recently um, at our church uh, where I took a very strong stance on something that some in the church deemed as very political. Um, and it was a political thing, but it was very much linked to some of the justice work that we were doing. Um, but because of that, um, I was I was I was quite quite attacked by a certain group, um, both within our church and ex- and outside of our church, um, who really struggled with the fact that we were taking a strong stance in something. So again, it, you know, it's going to come at a personal cost as well. Um, and I think um, for me, if you were to ask me what is the way that Jesus has discipled me most in the last 10 years? I would say it has been through the process of trying to become more just, trying to become more of a justice person has been the single way that God has discipled me the most because he's had to attack. He's had to point out my pride and my privilege and all these things that I do and all the habits that I have that keep other people oppressed that I wasn't even aware of. And as I've begun to become, I guess, um, woken up to the realities of what was happening around me and how some of my lifestyle choices were um, were holding people in oppression that I didn't even know. Um, yeah, like you've got to then do the hard work of going, well, am I willing to change? Now that mm-hmm. I have this information, am I going to allow it to actually deeply uproot some things in my life? And that's a journey of discipleship. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I think there's pain in discipleship. But, um, I think one of the one of the things that we need to recapture in the evangelical church tradition is pain and the the importance of suffering. Yeah. Um, and what does suffering really look like? Um, and I think discipleship cannot come without without suffering, cannot come without pain. It's the picking up of our cross. Um, and the disciples themselves really struggled with that, and many left Jesus um, because of that. And uh, so anyway, I feel like as I've gone through that process myself, I've really um, been, been changed dramatically. So there is cost, but that cost is is part of Jesus refining us. I think that's 
that's a, a whole episode um, to talk <laughs> about the suffering. Uh, yes. it's, pro- it's probably a whole lecture series. But um, I think that in the churches that I've been part of, there can be a view that if you're suffering, it's because something has gone wrong in your faith walk. Um, mm. that, that actually you're suffering because you've stepped out of line somewhere. Mm-hmm. What I hear you saying is sometimes you're suffering because actually God's calling you to something that costs and that that's hard. Absolutely. Um, not not that God comes and like whips you and and makes you hurt, but that he invites you into something that means oh. you've actually got to work through hurt of letting go of stuff, of grieving, of of all of that stuff. Absolutely. I mean I mean I think in the modern church we've defined um, blessing on to be blessed as the absence of pain. It's like if mm-hmm. I was to say to one of my congregation members, or maybe just disassociate from my church, if I was to say to someone in general, like, how would you define you've had a blessed year? They would probably say, well, I didn't catch COVID, you know, and I've come out of the year healthy and my family is safe and secure. And of course, God cares about those things. Mm-hmm. But we've come to define what it is to be blessed by God or to be in the will of God as the absence of pain and suffering. Look at the look at the early church, Acts chapter five. You know, there's Peter preaching the gospel, poured in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, his power authority of his day, the Jewish power authority, the seventy one men of the temple. They they basically say to him, "You got to stop preaching it." Um, he stands up in front of them and says, "Nah, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to obey God, and not man." They flog him, beat him severely, send him away, and it says in Acts chapter five that he went away rejoicing that he was counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Now, there's something, like, I think if you were to ask Peter, what does it mean for you to be blessed? I don't think he's going to say, oh, it's because I'm suffering, because I don't think there's any joy in suffering itself. But I think what he would say is this, I was found faithful in my suffering. Like, that's, I I rejoice that I was invited into solidarity with Jesus um, through suffering. Um, that Jesus counted me worthy enough. That, and, and I think this is another thing, and I could talk about this for years, so just tell me to shut up yeah. in a minute. But um, but I think there's this other thing where um, the church, right? Um, the church wants miracles and the church wants breakthrough and the church wants healing and restoration because those are the things that we see in Jesus. We see Jesus doing those things. And so therefore we think the kingdom of God, we want those things, we need those things. And absolutely correct. However, if we really want the fullness of who Jesus is, yes, we want the miracles and the kingdom and the walking on the water and the healings and the restoration, but we should also be prepared for the suffering because mm. Jesus was both and Jesus actually was victorious through both. Yes, he healed. Yes, he restored. Yes, he did the miracles, but he also went to the cross. He also suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. He also was rejected by some of his best friends. He was betrayed by those he loved. All of those experiences very real for him. So if you want to follow Jesus and you only want the one side without the other, then I think you're 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 basically choosing the Jesus that you want and rather than the Jesus of Scripture. And this is, like you say, something you could talk about for ages, and and actually you do, because uh, you've started a podcast, right? Um, and I love the name, uh, a broken hallelujah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming coming from the Leonard Cohen lyrics. Yes, correct. Um, yeah, just just a beautiful phrase, but it. It's something that taps into this whole idea of suffering and growth and um, and what does faith and suffering together look like? Do you want to just explain a little bit about why you decided to start it and yeah um, yeah and where, well, I, where it's going? Yeah, I mean, I mean, whenever people ask me what I do for a living, um, I always um, 
hold back from telling them I'm a pastor. I, I don't know what it's like in New Zealand, but in Hong Kong, like, you know, that's that's the last thing anybody wants to hear. And they're going to think I'm either going to try to convert them or I'm some like Jedi and I'm going to read their minds and tell them all the bad things they've ever done. <laughs> so so I actually generally don't tell them that. I actually tell them what I, what I actually do, which is, which is something along the lines of, well, I have the great privilege of um, being invited into the worst moments of people's lives and I help them in there. Um, and, and that's actually what I, in the last 10 years as a pastor, what I've probably done the most because nobody, you know, nobody sends me an email when they're, they're on holiday in Bali going like, Hey, Pastor Andrew, things are great. I just wanted you to know that my life's great. You know, I get the emails, yeah. I get the phone calls when, when people's worlds have turned upside down and, and when yeah. things are really bad. Um, and again, I count that as a great privilege as a pastor. So I get invited into those moments to to do what I can to pray and to help and to walk families through the worst things. So over the last 10 years, I've, I've seen literally, you know, the, the hardest moments of people's lives and the hardest moments that I think you can almost see in humanity. And here's something that I've noticed. There are those that can suffer the worst things and come out and eventually flourish, obviously after a period of healing and restoration, but eventually flourish mm-hmm. again. And there are those that can suffer the hardest things in life and never actually get over it and never actually seem to find their footing again and flourish. Um, and the question for me, and, and it's Christians in both of those camps. So the question for me is, what's the difference between the one who can suffer and yet eventually flourish versus the one who suffers and can't. Um, and I think really the podcast is my exploration of trying to find an answer for that. And I, I, I don't have the answer to that, but what I, what I have seen is that some of the most profound moments of humanity have come through people's greatest expressions and, and encounters of pain and suffering. Um, and um, equally with that, you know, there's that beautiful moment in the Old Testament where, where Jacob wrestles with God. You know, he, he's in a, a moment of great trauma himself. He's fleeing. Uh, he's just, you know, betrayed his family, essentially his brother. Um, and there's God. He doesn't realize it's God. He wrestles with this person. And the scriptures say he walks away with a limp. You know, and I and I just think like I know in my own life that that's been my experience as a Christian. I've had to wrestle with God in some of the pain of my own life, and I know I've walked away with a limp. That I'm different mm. because of that, um, and and sometimes different bad. You know that that there was some pain and hurt there that mm. that often still resurfaces. But then I'm so much a different person because God has healed, you know, put his finger on the socket, you know, of whatever it was that I was wrestling with and has mm-hmm. caused me to redefine who I am. So my experience has been um, that I've seen that in people that I've worked with. And I'm like, I want to bring a voice to that. Nothing annoys me more than that traditional Christian thing of throwing a bumper sticker on something, you know, oh, well, you just need to pray more or, or yeah. oh, you, you must be out of the will of God or, or you know, oh, you just need to believe have more faith for healing and you'll heal you know and um and i've seen that do more abuse often um than actually kind of going you know what no this sucks like this is not great and i actually don't know why i'm suffering this way and actually i have some big questions of god and if he's really the god that i think he is he can handle those questions and i'm gonna i'm gonna sit down and i'm gonna wrestle and you know what my my theology might shift you know my my understanding of god might shift out of this um but i want to know who he is. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Like I, I, I want to feel that journey anyway. So I, the, the podcast mm. really a broken hallelujah is about this idea of what does it mean to hold on to the hallelujah when we're broken? What does it mean to not throw our faith out the window, but equally not throw that cheesy bumper sticker on it and, and, mm. and therefore bury our true feelings, but actually to go, you know what, this is difficult. I don't have the answers. I actually don't know what God is doing, or I don't even necessarily know who God is in this. Um, 
but here's here's what I experienced and here's what I went through. Um, and so the podcast it, it's not a it's not a podcast to deconstruct faith. Um, I choose um, people for the podcast that are still strongly Christian, that still you know are orthodox in their beliefs, if you will, and and are still pressing on in the faith, but who have had horrendously difficult experiences in life. Um, and and again, it's about really drawing out from them. It's about their experience, their story, their journey. And therefore, what can we then be inspired and learn about in our own? Because all of us have our own expression of trauma or suffering or something that we've been mm. through. Um, and so, yeah, that's been the passion for the podcast. And uh, we're only three episodes in, uh, so it's very early days. Um, but got some great, I've got about 10 episodes already lined up and planned and mostly recorded. So um, some amazing uh, testimonies of people that have yeah experienced stuff that um, I believe um, as people sit and listen to their story they'll be greatly inspired for their own yeah yeah I, I haven't listened to your latest one but the first two were both just so impact, impacting um, yeah I need, I'll go and do it straight after this yeah I can um, tell that my, my count went down by one yeah <laughs> yeah but um yeah I, I've just found them so inspiring um, mm, and thank you. and uncomfortable in places. Mm-hmm which mm-hmm. I think is a, a really good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that it, there's that challenge there that this isn't necessarily all the things I want to hear to make me feel better about this. This is, right. like you say, this is a wrestling, this is a journey. Yeah. Yeah, I've just, I, I've just finished an interview with a with a couple that um, were held for 165 days by Islamic terrorists in a dark cell. And I'm just like listening to this couple sharing their story. And I'm thinking to myself, and I was upset that I was locked down in my apartment for five days. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So, so it's when you hear these kind of stories that it helps to relativize yeah. our own suffering, actually. Uh, and, and, and I think that's quite a powerful thing. So, yeah. 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 And I think one of the things that I've been impressed with, too, is that uh, you're not doing this just to tell other people's stories, but you're doing this because this is actually the journey you've walked yourself. Mm. You know, um, I remember uh, we're at the start of the, the episode, you said, you know, you're a dad of, of a 10 year old. And uh, I remember when Bex and I first met you and Christine and we had you over to our little unit for dinner. Yeah. And, uh, and, and as young married couples do, we kind of got into conversation and, and I remember saying, Oh, have you, you thought about having kids? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and your reply was, well, actually we've, we've found that we can't, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which firstly, I want to say that you, you replied that in such a graceful way that I didn't feel like knob of the century, which I, I could have, <laughs> I could have easily done. You, you, you could well have felt that way. Yeah, exactly. totally. And, and I mean, I don't know, that must've been a really challenging journey to get asked that question a lot of times as mm. newly married Christian couples seem to get asked that question every five seconds. Yeah. When are you going to have um, kids? Yeah. So, so what was that? First of all, what was that like for you? And then, and then, how did you go from there to, um, to where you are now, being a dad? Yeah. yeah well. Yeah. Well. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah. So my uh, my wife and I were trying for about two years um, for for children, uh, and you know nothing had happened. Um, and maybe naively, we just thought like, oh, maybe this is everybody's journey, and we didn't really think much about it. And we were at another dinner party sharing with another couple. Um, and uh, they did ask that question, you know, when are you guys having kids? And we, and we said, well, 
we've been trying for two years and we haven't had kids yet, but we'll just keep trying, you know? Yeah. And they were like, two years? Like, you've been waiting two years? That's crazy. So we suddenly realized that, oh, okay, maybe this is a little abnormal. Um, and uh, and they said, well, you should go to the doctors. You should get checked. Um, so yeah, so we, off the back of that conversation, I mean, it makes me sound so stupid, right? But anyway, we decided <laughs> to then go to the doctors. Oh, you, you don't um, know what you don't know, man. Yeah, like... you don't know what you don't know, right? And anyway, so we go and um, I have to say, like, I, I figured that the issue was going to be with my wife, Chris, you know, because at the end of the day for a woman there's a lot of things that can go wrong in that process and for a guy it's kind of like one thing you know um and so rightly wrongly i was like okay probably probably the issues with my wife chris um so uh, i was all prepared to be that great husband when the news came that you know there was there was some issues that she was working through and of course you know ironically the news comes back you know she's as healthy as can be i mean the, literally the, what the doctor said was you could re- reproduce kids all over the place that was his literal words uh, this was whilst we were in new zealand <laughs> uh, so this was classic new zealand doctors yeah. um you could literally reproduce all over the place um but then but then the issue was with me uh, and and my 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 context so it turns out that um i have a um condition called azuspermia so um so uh i'll get personal with this because hey we're, we're friends and everybody yeah. else listening is friend as well um so the average male ejaculation has about 200 million sperm in it okay um you're deemed infertile if you have 40 million or less okay um, so that's still a heck of a lot of sperm, right? Forty million. Yeah. Um, I have zero. So um, I wow. literally, in my in my ejaculations that they tested, I had absolutely no no sperm at all. So um, that went through a year of process. Um, they mm. they suggested some surgery to find out if I was actually um, actually creating sperm or not. Um, that came back negative. So basically, I have just no sperm in my body at all. So at that point. You know, the options were donor insemination or adoption if we wanted to continue to um, to have children. And so, yeah, and I have to say, like, this was whilst I was at Bible school. It must have been around about the time that you guys came. And um, it was really difficult because I think I had that um, masculine um, thinking of like part of part of what it means to be a man is to father children. You know, I think I had that that sense. I, I even probably had a theological kind of understanding of that. Um, I think it was part of my identity. I'd always wanted children and I felt like God had always put in my heart the desire to be a father. Um, so I had to suddenly wrestle with um, I'm not the man that I thought I was. Um, what does it mean to be male and not be able to father children? Um, and what does this mean about God? Like, like God put a desire in my heart for children and then physically took the ability away from me to do so. So how, how do I wrestle with that? Like, how do I get around the anger that I had? And I was, I was angry at God for, for months off the back of this, um, which was really a weird thing when you're studying at seminary to be a pastor and, 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 you know, you, you kind of hate God, um, (laughs) I, I kind of I I, what, I remember in my diary I wrote one day like um, I I know I love you God but I don't like you very much and I think that was very much the, the journey that I was on anyway so um, long story short um, you know we we looked at um, adoption through New Zealand process because my wife's from New Zealand um, but that wasn't going to work for us and so when we came back to Hong Kong after graduating Bible school we got into the adoption process um, and that's a whole other story that I don't really have time for now but mm. um, it was a huge huge thing and we finally after about three years of that process were matched to um, a beautiful little girl she's half Nepalese half Indonesian um, and so uh, really a, a very interesting mix of cultures um, and uh, so yeah we adopted her um, about eight years ago 
um, and she's now 10 years old. And um, yeah, but I think, you know, just in summary, I think also that experience for me kind of drives the podcast as well. It's like, mm. I know, I know kind of, I've, I've had to go to the depths of my identity. And that's one thing that I think I see as I talk to people uh, as a pastor. And as I talk to people for this podcast, the number one thing that really comes up is identity. Who, who are we? What does it actually mean to be human? Um, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does it mean to be um, like Adam and Eve were in Genesis 1 and 2, naked and unashamed before God and before others? What does that look like? And what and what is my identity? Who am I? Um, and that um, is what I, I had to almost recreate my identity. Um, I had to um, learn to love myself again. Um, and I had to go through that whole process. And most of the people that I'm speaking to on this podcast and that I've passed it over the last uh, 10 years or so, that's their journey too. It's an identity journey. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to me how God so much needs to at times break our identity down to rebuild it into um, one who is um, as he has always intended us to be. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. that that's a really vulnerable uh, thing to share. And, mm. and so I really appreciate that. But like I said, I think that really does sit underneath that podcast. And yeah, I, I think it's beautiful that having wrestled that yourself, you're now finding other people who actually share completely different but really similar experiences. Yeah. And I, and I think just the, the gift of vulnerability, you know, I think when I went through um when I went through this process and I, I came back to Hong Kong and uh, started pastoring at our church and, um, you know, through a lot of my sermons, you know, I, I was, I was like, this is what I'm going through. And I was just pretty authentic with people and just mm -hmm. was like, you know what, um, I'm not going to stand up here and trying to pretend that I've got it all together. You know, I'm going to tell you about this journey that I went through where I kind of didn't like God very much. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to be open and honest about the realities that, you know, I'm not the perfect person or this perfect pastor who has it all together. And I think that's kind of been something that I've been really committed to in my, in the last 10 years of leading this church um, is that um, I have pain and I have vulnerability and I've made mistakes um, and I'm not maybe the person I thought I was at some one point in my life, you mm. know, I'm, I'm different and, um, and I've had to really wrestle with God in that. And so I think that journey and taking the church through that journey um, yeah. has been really healing for me, but also really healing for others. And I think that's one thing I would say, you know, one of the reasons why I'm committed to this kind of ministry of, of vulnerability and authenticity is because I think it is the place where healing takes place. Um, I think as, as long as we keep a front up um, with God and a front up with others, um, the Holy Spirit, you know, can, really struggles to break in and actually do the work that perhaps mm. the Holy Spirit wants to do. I think it's when we actually put our put our cards on the table and we go, you know what, I am struggling with this. Uh, you know what, I don't have the answers to this. Um, I do have doubt about this. Um, you know what, this thing here really upset me. Um, I don't, I can't discern God's will in this area or whatever it is. And we actually put it down um, and we we actually open ourselves up then for others to come. Um, I think when we're when we're vulnerable and authentic, we create a space um, where, yes, others can come in and trample over us. That's the risk. There's a huge amount of risk. But also we create a space for those to come and join us in it, to come alongside of us in that journey. And, mm. and um, certainly over my experience, um, uh, as we've as we've been intentional about creating open space for vulnerability, uh, we've actually seen people be able to be really healed and restored, um, mm. and and that's that's why I'm in ministry and that's why I love to do what I do. Cool. And and final question: How did you then tie that 
Leonard Cohen lyric and uh, <laughs> like what was it about that that grabbed you and went this is the right the right yeah. thing. I, I think um, I think obviously uh, Leonard Cohen. You know, I've re- I've read a couple of interviews that he uh, that he did on that song. It's one of the songs that he was actually really proud of, um, and um, you know, he really wanted to take the idea of Hallelujah, um, the idea of an expression of of a hope in a divine figure, and secularize it. That was his hope that like bring something that was say biblical and bring it into secular context and situations. Um, and obviously the, the first opening couple of, um, verses of that, uh, are really telling the story of David. Um, and, uh, and I think David's always been a character that I have been drawn to in the scriptures. Um, because David is one where obviously God was like, here's one after my own heart. You know, here's, here's one that I'm choosing. You know, he was the runt of the litter, if you will, you know, the little shepherd's boy that, that, you know, everybody was ignoring. God puts his hand upon him, um, raises him up to this amazing responsibility. You know, he becomes the archetype of what a leader and a king is in the Davidic dynasty. And Jesus links himself proudly back to David's line and all of this. And yet David was an adulterer and a murderer. And you kind of like, how do I wrestle with the reality that this is God's chosen one? God's going to bring Jesus through this person's bloodline. And yet this person's an adulterer and a murderer. And, and I think that's the broken hallelujah. Like there's this beautiful thing where, where David is fasting and, and praying for God to spare um, the death of his son, right? He's, got, he's like really praying for it, uh, and, and God doesn't do it, and, and his son passes away, and he then goes straight into the temple, uh, and he worships. And I, and I just think like there's something there. Um, first of all, David was incredibly human. Uh, he was a sinner in need of a savior, so I can resonate with his story in there. And then secondly, in the worst moment of his life, he was able to bring, a, I think, a broken hallelujah. I think that's what, mm. Cohen's, that's what Cohen's picking up on. It wasn't like his son passed away and then suddenly he was like, woohoo, everything's great. You know, I'm going to go yeah. worship. He was like, he went into the, I think he went into that place on that day and he there was anguish in him. But yet he was like, I, you know, I'm going to give you my trust, God. I'm going to honor you. Uh, I'm going to, no matter, you know, how bad this gets, right? You know, um, I'm going to still hold on to that little bit of faith that's still in me and I'm going to praise mm. you. And so, um, yeah, I, I think I I really have resonated with that in my own life um, many, many times. And, you know, it's a beautiful song that Lemmy Code wrote. Of course, it was made famous by Jeff Buckley and and then by uh, Shrek. Um, but, uh <laughs> But pri- but primarily, uh, when we listen to it in Leonard Cohen's expression of it, I think it really does draw out that beautiful tension between um, what does it mean to hold on to God in the midst of the worst moments of life. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. Um, thanks for all the meat that you've left us to to chew on. Um, mm. All the all the veggie for those <laughs> non meat eaters. All, all the good the good veggies to to chew on. Mm-hmm. Um, now you've left us with a lot to think about around justice, around um, brokenness, around creativity. And mm. uh, so I really appreciate your vulnerability as well to mm. share all of that. And um, yeah, thank you for all that you're doing to help to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Mm, mate, it's been such a pleasure to, to be invited on. So thanks so much. Man. 
Thanks so much to you, Andrew, for this rich corridor, uh, this rich conversation. I love your compassion for people and your commitment to standing up against injustice. I don't know where all of you are at, but for those who are listening who call yourselves Christian or followers of Jesus, what a huge challenge Andrew offers us here when he says, we cannot outsource the reality of justice. If we're going to be a people of Jesus, we have to be a people of justice. I think this discussion about suffering is also extremely important because uh, I think too often the church doesn't know what to do with suffering. And so we end up with all sorts of unhelpful cliches from what did you do to bring this on yourself to uh, God's got something better for you and every equally unhelpful thing in between. So let's wrestle with suffering. Let's listen to those who are suffering and let's see how we can walk with them rather than judging them. And if you are suffering in some way at the moment, my heart goes out to you. May you know that you are not alone. And may you find someone who truly hears you in your pain and can walk with you there. But for Andrew, I've written this blessing for you and for anyone else who wants it. May justice reign in and through you and the communities you inhabit. May you see fruits of your labour in halting the wheels of injustice and the strength and courage to continue when you don't. May you revel in the joy of a community motivated by love. May your experiences of fatherhood always remind you of the faithfulness of God. May your beautiful daughter be a constant source of joy, but also may she be your teacher as she brings new twists to your story and you continue to be grown and shaped by love. May you continue to offer your broken hallelujahs, bringing your raw and vulnerable honesty to the table in the good times and the bad. And may you know the goodness of heaven in your own life and the life of your family as you continue to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. As usual, all music on the episode is by Strawn. Uh, thank you for listening. You can find me on Instagram or Facebook at, at downtoearth.conversations on both uh, or at downtoearthconversations.com. Join me next time when I talk to Elena Chapman of 27 Seconds Wine and find out how she and her husband are using wine to fight the evils of modern slavery. Until then, me inoi tātou. E tō mātau matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatira tanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātau ai nei E taroma mātau mō tēnei rā Muro mātou hara, me mātou hoki e muru nei i o te hunga e hara ana kia mātou. Aua hoki mātou e kawea kia whakawaia, engari whakorangia mātou i te kino. Amen.